Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM's Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick an area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM sports account to get started. Then visit your promotions section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. There's nothing more exciting than going yard with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. shows whether it be punk hardcore indie rock all that sort of stuff ska let's throw ska in there so we're taking those principles and then obviously applying them to uh later on in life in different facets so that's what we do here so hopefully that that brings you up to speed but kevin divine is a incredible singer songwriter artist performer whatever label you want to put on him he's a really nice guy so i imagine you could put any label um as long as there is uh, nothing bad attached to it (laughs) but um yeah, Kevin's a great guy, and we had a very, very insightful discussion. But before we uh, dive too far into it, I have to tell you about something that is is really important to me, and that's that's human connections. Um, because you know, podcasting is obviously a very isolating medium. You know, sometimes you uh, tend to not know who's listening to these things. You know, I see that I get X amount of downloads. You know, I mean, really, it's twenty to forty thousand people listen to this thing on a week to week basis, which is unbelievable. So. The thing is, is that when I'm able to create these, you know, email or social media interactions with people that listen to the show, it's great. 
And I want to tell you about an incredible band called Holy Pinto. And the reason I got clued into these guys is because they started to write into the podcast and were saying, hey, we're big fans. We like what you're doing. And then I started to listen to them. And I was like, wow, these guys are good. So basically to give you kind of a, a top-down overview, they're uh, you know indie pop slash emo from the United Kingdom, Canterbury, to be, I think I'm pronouncing that appropriately. Um, and they just released an album called Congratulations in April on Softspeak Records. Really, really good record. And it's available everywhere. You can find it on any sort of digital streaming outlet. Or you can go pick up the pieces of vinyl that they have for sale at the Softspeak Record Store. They're on tour all October. Yes, October in Europe. And then they also are going to come over here to the United States of America, play the fest in Gainesville, and then tour around the country. And these dudes just just do it. They're hard workers. They're uh, incredibly intelligent people. And they're creating good music. So I want to play you a little song up there because this is how uh, passionately I feel about this band. So the song is called Hospital Room. Please check it out. And then uh, I'll talk to you before we get into our uh, Kevin Devine interview. So here, it's called Hospital Room by Holy Pinto. It's such a pretty hospital room. It's like an Such a pretty hospital room Reminds me of my finest days of school It's such a pretty hospital room It's like an old hotel that we once went to Taking compliments from a shrink Pretty great stuff, right? So, like I said, Holy Pinto. The reason it's so important to me is because uh, I just I love people that interact with the show. So, if you feel like interacting with me, email the show one hundred words podcast at gmail because that's exactly how Holy Pinto did this thing. So, anyways, like I said, Kevin Devine, uh, incredibly compelling conversation. Uh, I'm not going to uh, belabor that point anymore, and I'm just going to let you enjoy this conversation we had over Skype one afternoon. So, here's Kevin Devine. Drink, and I've been drinking alone. I 
I'll, uh, I'll, I'll rewind it back to uh, late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, you and I are roughly the same age. So okay. uh, I was working at an independent record store here in Southern California uh, called Bionic Records. And I was mm-hmm. like the main buyer for like these three stores. And so I would always kind of noticed when certain records started to, I guess, do well, you know, where it's like, oh, wow, I brought in like three copies of this thing and they all sold out. Right. Um, and so it's like it was always a very fun thing to watch because usually I, I noticed when people really, really started to gravitate towards an artist. Um, and so it was like for the Miracle of 86, it was one of those things where, you know, the Immigrant Sun release, uh, well, not the Immigrant Sun release, the uh, Fade Away, right? That was Fade Away, okay. Fade Away Records. They, uh, Immigrant Sun, I think, later reissued that record in a very modest way when I think Fade Away kind of faded away away. yeah exactly but uh but initially it was fade away yeah right and so i just remember uh, all of a sudden it was like oh like i felt uh, i felt a momentum here in southern california um but obviously because you guys never made it out here like you were never able to really like witness that in any capacity no no and i'm in fact i don't know if i ever even knew (laughs) i think i'm finding it out now Right. For the first time from you, that that was even, I don't even know if I totally understood that, that record even got like anyway. national distribution. Mm hmm. Of any sort. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, because it was like, you know, I was ordering them from just like, you know, one-stop, you know, distros. Uh, I wasn't ordering from Very, but I was ordering from like, you know, Lumberjack and Revelation. Right, yes, yeah. But it was, uh, like I said, it was just one of those things where it's like I started to notice it. Um, And obviously, uh, you know, you've you've been well-documented in regards to, uh, you know, why the band stopped playing and performing. And obviously, you guys did the reunion shows and stuff. But Mm -hmm. did you ever feel like that sort of, um, did you feel that momentum at all? Like, you guys were like, oh, man, we're like just close to like doing something cool uh, before, obviously, everything else kind of stepped in the way. Or was it always just like, no, this is an uphill battle? Well, I think that there are tears to all of that. And I think, I mean, first of all, I, I don't know what anybody else is like, but I know at, at 20, 21, 22 years old, I, I didn't really understand much about how things worked. Um you know, in, in a real way anyway, and like an actual mechanic way, like how band gets from this place to this place. And I think you could feel certain uh, tears of that experience. You could feel like, oh, people are actually coming to the shows that aren't like my friends from Staten Island. Uh, people are coming to, people are asking us to go play shows in places that aren't just like South Brooklyn or whatever, you know, like there was this club called the punk temple in Bensonhurst. That was quite literally a temple that had punk shows on the weekend. And you know, like that you lived in places like that. And then I think you feel like a little awareness that your circle's kind of slowly expanding. And, and, and then I sort of pre, if not pre-internet, pre-internet saturation, um, you know, like maximum rock and roll reviewed your record or something like that, you know, like little things like that where you're like, Oh, we're, we're on some kind of radar distantly, quietly beeping somewhere. Um, but it was so modest. And so like we, I know at a time miracle kind of became for a little while, like the New York band du jour to open for like any touring emo or indie rock band of consequence which was awesome like 2000 
2000, 2001, and two, we played with a lot of like now, you know, like Promise Ring and uh, early version of Cursive and, you know, or, or Domestica, I guess, around then Cursive mm-hmm. and yep. uh, Hey Mercedes and Mile Marker and Rival Schools and Desiparisados and Rilo Kylie and Bright Eyes. You know, like we played with a bunch of stuff at the point where those bands were playing at like Brownies, like a 200 cap club in New York or something. Um, so I knew that was like different than just like playing local shows or playing like local shows where it's like you and four other bands from the same town. But I definitely didn't know as, uh, as early as that record that, that, that there was anything even outside the like Northeast really of any kind of consequence. I think that fadeaway comp that ended up having a bunch of two like eventual world beaters on it like you know brand new and taking back sunday and a bunch of bands that ended up being like big deals we were on that and i think i was aware that was getting some play um but i don't think i felt miracle would had like a, a real momentum going until about 2003 and then the band broke up pretty soon after but we like went and toured the northeast and the midwest and like the south with sorry about dresden the saddle creek band and did like cmj and did south by southwest and the record got like reviewed positively in alternative press and you know like you just started to get a sense that people who people who were into this kind of music were like more and more aware of it. And I thought the record was really good and people seemed to be reacting to it in a way that was like, Oh, this is actually cool. Um, and then that was like right at the point the band stopped playing. But I, what I'll never know is if that was like, if we were at the cusp of turning into a, I don't know what any of those bands turned right. into. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't yeah. necessarily think so. And I think, like, anyway, that's kind of a fool's errand because that band broke up for very, very real reasons. And I just finished the Replacements book, and I'm I'm, I'm kind of like, you're reading that book, like, nodding your head. Right. And it was just like, <laughs> the Replacements just happened to be, like, already... It was a different time, different moment, and they were further up in their ascension when I think they started to really like piss people off with their like insistence on being drunk and fucked up louts, you know, um, we were not anywhere near there and we're already at the point where it was like all four people in the band were drunk or on drugs basically all the time and the different drugs and not drugs that got along well with each other. And, and I, what, you know, the replacements were like on Warner brothers, selling a couple hundred thousand records slated to be the next rem or whatever and we were like not we were selling 50 tickets anywhere that wasn't brooklyn so you know i i think even getting into the what might have happened is like it's just it's almost like um it's it's fantasy it's not what actually did happen and what actually did happen was for real reasons but maybe that was a longer answer than you than you i hope i addressed it i I do i had some i guess the the right way to say it is i had some awareness that there were people that weren't like my parents that liked miracle but i also it felt like a pretty far distance to me from where we were to like where the bigger saddle creek bands were or the long island bands we were playing with or at that time because we were in new york and kind of this like border band between indie rock and emo and punk we were also playing around bands like 
and the strokes world and Mooney Suzuki and the realistics. And we knew we weren't really where that was going either, you know? So mm-hmm. it was kind of like, I knew it was like, you know, that people are paying attention, but you don't really know how deeply and you don't really know what that attention's going to bring. Yeah. Uh, so if that makes sense. No, I really like, I honestly like that. Well, I mean, I like the answer because I think what the, the important thread to pull on there is the fact that, you know, when you do start something and you have these such incredibly like retro retroactively modest goals where it's just like, you know, like you, you mentioned the, you know, high points of like getting a review in MRR like that, you know, that's huge. Like, or getting a review in you know, heart attack or whatever. Like, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yes. Heart attack. Holy shit. I haven't thought of that. Yes. <laughs> yes. I actually remember scouring that they reviewed. Yes. Point being yes. Yeah, totally. Cause it's, it's exciting because th- those are the things that are obviously meaningful to you and you never thought that you could get to the same place, you know, that was mentioned all of the bands that you, you know, you worshiped and you, uh, paid attention to. So it's like, I think to me that, that answer is very, uh, revelatory, obviously of the, um, the idea that there was never a plan. From, from, well, like for, I mean, as far as like a plan to make a living off of music. Oh dude, I, I mean, and, and not to get too lost in, in the late nineties to early two thousands, but when basically like I was a high school to early college student and none of the music I made is of much consequence now, but, um, I would go even further and say for me, my, so I came to musical maturity in, in Staten Island on Staten Island. And there was for whatever reason, thank God this happened. I moved out there when I was in sixth grade at exactly a moment where there was this little self-contained punk rock, hardcore DIY scene on Staten Island, like independent Brooklyn wasn't a thing yet. Brooklyn, there was like Lemoore's and like bands like biohazard. It wasn't like LCD sound system and, uh, yeah, yeah, and whatever else that was, that was still way out in the future. Um, and you know, but there was this thing on Staten Island where like, all these bands were playing and they were all like influenced in kind of equal measure by like the upstate kind of vegan straight edge earth crisis kind of thing. And then the like DC hardcore kind of Fugazi discord thing. And they were all like kids on Staten Island. And so I went to high school and I started going to these shows where there were like, you know, hundred to 300 people every, twice a month going and watching these bands play. And like we would, their bands would come in from Connecticut, from Long Island, from Massachusetts, from Virginia, you know, wherever, and actually do like a New York show at ABC Rio or Wetlands or Brownies or whatever, CBs, and play a fucking Staten Island show. Like, that's not a thing. That isn't a thing now. It's probably never been a thing since. It definitely wasn't a thing before. It just happened to be the exact moment that I was like picking up a guitar and actually starting to like write songs with other people. And my goal was like get on a show then it was like get on a show at the joint instead of the rock palace because that was where like the actual scene was happening and then it was like get freedom from that place to review your record at our music center the local music store like go in and find your seven inch there and his handwriting and the the multicolored like markers on the upper right of the of the seven inch sleeve saying like this former Nirvana ripoff now sounds a little bit more like Sunny Day Real Estate meets Super Chunk, a welcome change, and being like, holy shit, Freedom likes our record. You know, like, right, right. 
that was my goals of it. I would love to say something different and maybe the truth, maybe you're not equipped to ever talk about yourself intelligently. Mm -hmm. Maybe someone else would say all of this is not true. It's felt to me like my goals have always been so what is the next step that sometimes that's always just, that's just felt like that is the, that's it. Right. You know what it like? That's the, so, and, and maybe that speaks to the kind of career I've had, which has been very like deliberate and very like one, it's kind of one brick, one step at a time sort of a thing. And maybe I'm either, it's either equal parts blessing and curse or one more than the other that I wasn't like, I met those Long Island kids when I was like 20 or whatever. And I was like, these dudes want to like take over the world. <laughs> I had no, right. I actually thought it was kind of gauche. You know, I was like these, this isn't these. And, and, and some of them became like my, some of my best friends in the world. But I remember being like, this is weird. These are like indie rock kids conducting themselves like, you know, LA rock bands or something like that were like really focused on, it felt to me like really focused on like careerism mm -hmm. and at a, for a kid who grew up with like hardcore bands and then like, you know, really being in love with like pavement and sloppy, sloppy stuff. Mm -hmm. Careerist was like, you know, <laughs> yeah, those, it, it's like calling someone a communist in uh, 1950 <laughs> or so, you know, I really thought like, and, and of course later I'm like, no, they were just, they were driven and they had a specific some of their information was different and they had a specific they actually did think we could do something with this whereas i was kind of always like we're doing it right oh we're in it right now yes exactly if that makes sense i think it does but no it, do it does but i i think it you know it speaks to the uh opportunities being available because you know the the notion like whatever a year or two makes a huge difference within the independent music context yes it does and it's like you know the the notion of a you know metallic hardcore band uh, making a living off of what they do in the late '90s was was foreign because you had you had obviously like you mentioned you, you you're sick of it alls and everything else that existed within the early '90s but then you know then you're like oh well hate breed you know like they did it and then but it wasn't honestly it's like you know once poison the well kind of you know really exploded and showed the fact that it's like oh wow I guess bands can like tour like you know three, that's right it, it just didn't it, because it, again it goes back to what you're talking about where it's like those, those years of difference between you and obviously the people who are slightly younger than you they saw the fact that it's like oh there is opportunity here where it's like you know you didn't have that context you're just like oh wow that doesn't make sense i can't do that <laughs> well right and also i think that's true and i also think it's the, t the time makes a big difference but also some of the stratifications and some of what like the grist that you were dealing with, like what was your, what was your information? I guess is what I, I keep going back to is like, you know, pavement had a career in music. So did a guy like Elliot Smith was building a career in music, but they were people who acted like that was anathema. You know what I mean? Like it was like the, the attitude about being a like successful indie rock musician at that time, the pose, I guess you could say was more of like, I don't fucking care. And it's lame to care. So I think I really bought into that to some extent when I was younger and thought when I met these like punk inflected kids that also were really interested in like being, you know, competitive, popular and competitive. 
it it just I thought it was kind of cheesy. Right. I guess yeah. I thought it was a little bit like the, the both what you're speaking to, which is like that it was unrealistic or something, but also I thought it was, and maybe that's like, that is speaking of that replacements book. That's probably equal measure. I'm sure there's some, you know, Freudian analysis of that. That's equal measures, fear of success and fear of failure. But what it really felt like was just kind of like, yeah, like a little, um, a little like what I thought punk was supposed to be a kind of, um, rejection of, <laughs> which is of course, like you grow up in it and you're like, no, nothing's or everything is just various degrees of high school. Um, and it plays itself out and, <laughs> in, in it's just, you know, different, uh, different kind of dress codes. Sure. But, but at the time that shit feels like life and death. Okay. I mean, I mean, it's kind of a cool thing I feel like with kids now that's a little more like universal about that stuff. I felt like back then it was like it was really important if you liked like you know, I don't know, if you listened to things like what was on Matador or if you were listening to like the Get Up Kids. Mm-hmm. And if you liked and I was someone who kind of liked both, but I the people I knew who were into like what was, I don't know, Cat Power and Chibamato and John Spencer Blues Explosion and Bell and Sebastian or whatever, they were kind of like, they definitely looked down their nose at like whatever was happening at the VFW Hall. Right. Well, it was cute. I mean, because realistically, it was kid shit to them. It was like, that's cute. You're trying this. Like, right, right. We're, right. Listening, we're listening to the more fleshed out adult stuff. So, yeah. And, and I think there was a time where I was definitely like, I. I definitely listened more often to, I was, I'm always, I've always been a songs person, but I've always tended towards like the get up kids were about the last band from that world for a while that I got really deeply into, you know, like for a while, that was like the last one that I remember seeing them at a three day festival in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania when I was 17 and I bought their bumper sticker and I put it on my car and that summer I drove around with a get up kids bumper sticker and okay computer and on cassette, which melted into my tape deck in my car that summer. And I remember, but those were the two worlds I was interested in. You know what I like? I thought Radiohead was incredible and I thought the get up kids were awesome. Um, and I think that you get into deeper into certain circles and it's kind of almost like we got to pick one. You know, almost totally. like it's nir- it's Nirvana or a little league baseball. And I was like, well, then I guess it's Nirvana. You know, I don't know. Probably not going to be a pitcher. So, right. but um, anyway, so, yeah, I, I, I guess be getting- I, okay. I guess I'll keep my uh, my motivations uh, in check because I know I can't be this thing. <laughs> yeah, to some extent, and I also think like. Yeah, there's a lot that goes into all those decisions. I mean, there's like the people you meet and the people you want to actually be spending your time around. And thankfully, I was like kind of blessed early with a bunch of people that were like just meeting, being 14 and meeting like cool 17 year old people, people that were like, you know, Marxist, vegan, uh, punks and hardcore kids and people that also were like, but have you ever really listened to John Lennon, man? It's amazing. (laughs) You know, being like, well, my mom loves the Beatles. No, 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 I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like working class hero. Have you really listened to that song? You know, that kind of stuff, which now it's like bad dialogue from a Cameron Crowe movie or something. But at the time it literally changes your, your life and, and it makes the baseball or Nirvana decision, not just about like, can I play second base for the Mets or can I like write songs and, 
make a living, which wasn't the thought. It was like, Can do I you want to be around people like this or people like that? Yeah. If that makes sense. Totally. Um, that's a very, that's a very good point. I mean, it's a very appropriate way to look at it because it's like everything doesn't need to be at the highest level. Like as long mm-hmm. as you're, you're happy, you're comfortable. And obviously you're being able to express yourself. Like who cares? Like who cares what, what level of quote unquote success that you've achieved from the mainstream perspective? I um, think that is still tr- yeah. true. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. your career. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I think that it's funny. It's like, I think that the deeper into that career I get, the more I'm either like, depending on how close to the beam I am that day, like whatever word you want to use spiritually or whatever, emotional health wise, I either am like really profoundly grateful for the insanely lucky circumstance that is the career I have, or I'm like, did I do something wrong? <laughs> you know, <laughs> totally. and I, I, it's all just about how everybody else's grass looks. And, and, and I think that some days you're happy with yours and some days, you know, you are, you let things in that you shouldn't let in. If that makes sense. Uh, totally. but anyway, I might be jumping all the fuck over the place timeline wise, but that's fine. It's completely fine. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We're sitting here. It's like June and you're like, where has the time gone? And everybody's like, oh my gosh, I have no idea. I got to like accomplish all these other things. Take a moment, focus on the things that obviously for one matter to you, but for two, look back, be like, what have I done? Well, what have I done? Not so well. And maybe I can, you know, ask some friends and family for some help, but where I have always gone to in regards to figuring out what I can do better therapy, therapy is an incredible tool at your arsenal that you can dip into. I've done it for my marriage. I've done it for myself personally. And I'm a huge advocate for what therapy can do for you because it is a third party that's able to look at what you can do to improve your life and be a person to help you along in your journey. And so I think if you were thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and entirely suited to your schedule. All you do is fill out a brief questionnaire, you get matched with a licensed therapist, and then boom, you're done. It's great. And then if you're not vibing with the therapist, you can switch it at no additional cost. So take a moment, reflect on the things you've done, reflect on the things you want to do, and visit betterhelp.com slash Ray today to get 10% off of your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Ray. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM's Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick an area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM sports account to get started. Then visit your promotions section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. There's nothing more exciting than going yard with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park. This is it. Your moment. 
This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. There's actually something I wanted to pull on because uh, I I think it's, I mean, you've mentioned it, um, you know, in multiple interviews, um, but I think it's such a uh, incredible point that you've made. And I think you've made very eloquently where it's the, um, you know, like you mentioned, when you first started going to shows in Staten Island, you had, you know, a little bit older kids, obviously being able to, you know, introduce you to uh, things like, you know, whatever powers in veganism. Yeah, right. That's exactly right. Noam Chomsky. I remember that like vividly the first person that was like, have you ever heard of this guy? Anyway? Yeah, go ahead. But yeah, no, I just think it's very, um, you know, I, I presume that, that, uh, you know, even though certain ideals, you know, stick with you and some things don't, but you still seem like you've been very, um, you know, not only profoundly influenced by that scene that you obviously were raised by, um, but do you think the importance is just simply being exposed to that stuff or is it, is it kind of the fact that like, you know, you stick to some of that stuff as you obviously, uh, you know, get older with whatever you decide to do? I mean, it's funny. This actually connects to the first thing we were talking about because everything is so one step at a time. It, it really does feel in some ways like, so like me having this conversation with you is the however many hundred thousandth step in a process that started in, you know, fifth grade in Brooklyn and one step at a time leads here. And I really do. So in some respects, like I don't think about that scene or that music or those kids who are now like all, you know, 40 something year old people. I don't think about there's a presentness about it sometimes that still feels like I'm, I'm sometimes surprised when I see people I haven't seen for a long time and realize like how far from that world they are. And it kind of drives home to me how rare it is to actually have like been a person who grew up playing in bands that ends up being a person who makes a living playing in bands, uh, is like, you are really the 1% in that respect in some ways, not, you know what I mean? When I use that phrase, like it's not, it's much more rare that that happens than that it doesn't, you know? Um, so similarly, ideologically, some of the stuff those people taught me about and and spoke to me about, I'm sure if I went back and could hear some of the conversations we were having, then now you'd wince at the like certitude, kind of black and white, idealist moralizing of it because I really am a person who thinks there's almost never black and white anything at this point in my life. It's very rare that I think there's no you know, no amount of complexity, nuance, but, um, but I do feel like those things, it wasn't like, Oh, I remember when, isn't it adorable that 
these people were vegan and Marxists, like even if they're not anymore, and I'm, I'm not either of those things. I'm, I'm on the spectrum with both, <laughs> but I'm not, right. I'm not either black and white. So I, I for me, it's like, it, it just feels like, yeah, it was important to be introduced to it because it literally ended the same way. It was important to be introduced to Nirvana when I was seven, seventh grade. And I don't think that's adorable. Like, I still think those records are fucking awesome because, because they are. And because I feel like I'm still making music that every once in a while, like, is pick, I'm still picking that record out of my teeth, you know, 20 something years later. I'm still picking those ideas out of my teeth. Be, not because, um, out of nostalgia, but because they were so nourishing and satisfying that they actually, like, were the formative steps on a path that I'm still on and not in a regressive, I feel like, I feel like not in a regressive teenage high school way, but in a like, to me, ideally punk music was about showing you that there was an alternate way of thought through your life. And yes, of action. And yes, thought is one thing and action is another. And, you know, but, that you didn't have to think about things one certain way. And also here are some things that we think and that help us have helped us kind of open up our definitions. And so it's important that I was introduced to that stuff, but not just because like at the time it was catalytic, but because it like, there's still things I very much think about every day that are like, you know, tangentially or not tangentially connected to probably conversations I was having with people then, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, absolutely. Because other, you know, I mean, it, so many people obviously don't even get introduced to these ideas for, you know, sometimes their whole entire life. And then all of a sudden something, you know, some person gets introduced to an idea that completely changes their perspective. Um, and you know, they, they, you sit there wishing like, I wish I would have heard about this earlier, but then because we're thrown into this, you know, stew of like 9 million ideas coming at you, whether like, yes. don't believe this, do support this, don't do this. And then like, you know, yeah, it can become dogmatic, but at the same time, like what you're talking about, you are afforded the opportunity to hopefully uh, choose and figure out which things apply to you and which things should kind of fall by the wayside as opposed to never even presented at all. That's exactly right. And I felt like I feel grateful that there was a balance. I, like, you know, everyone's family's got gradations of fucked upness about it. And mine is not exempt from that. But I do think as an adult, if, you know, I've heard someone said, someone said to me once, if you shook out your problems onto a table in a room with a bunch of people, it is likely that there will be at least one other person in that room where when you weighed your problems against that person's, you would go, I'll take my problems back, <laughs> you know, yeah, rather I'll than, take right. yeah. And, and I think I very much feel that way about my family life. And I feel like I had this opportunity to be afforded this alternative perspective while also like more or less being around like pretty good information and energy at home, not flawlessly unassailably good because that doesn't exist but on the whole more good than bad and it kind of plays itself out in like kind of cartoonish ways sometimes like your father who wasn't a retired nypd lieutenant coming to the basement of a guy called freedom's house who was a marxist socialist vegan straight edge hardliner 
and them like shaking hands and hanging out while you like get ready to play an acoustic set when you're 15 and you're kind of looking at this thing and you're like it's not you're not supposed to literally be able to see like the yin and the yang like that in your life and like it would be there and i actually look back at that and think like just that's stupid amounts of luck because both sides were really grounded and firm in very different ways but the like I guess the respect for the other side's solidity was a cool thing to be around and witness. And like, I was never told by my parents, like, don't go there, you know? And I was never told by that guy, like, you should fucking hate your parents (laughs) or whatever. It was just kind of like, I I don't know. Those things, maybe there's something in that that feels pretty deep, some, some deeply rooted somewhere that I'm like still, it's like I feel like sometimes I hear like my my hyper radical friends talk, and there's like this part of me that wants to be like measured, um, and then I hear like you know hyper radical and what I perceive to be the wrong direction talk, and I want to be like you want to shake them the <laughs> fuck up kind of a thing. So if that makes sense, there's like both of those guys are in there yeah. somewhere. Well, I mean, yeah, it's the it's the perpetual balance you try to create. Like you're talking about, obviously, like you've mentioned, there's there's no uh, black or white. There's usually a gray area, and like somewhere in between, that falls the truth for yourself. And so, so yeah, no, I totally get where you're coming from. Um, but you, I mean, talking about all this, like you've always struck me. Just you know, obviously, we spent very very little time meeting one another in the same place. But like you've always struck me as a very kind of a uh, easygoing person in the sense of um, you didn't have a lot, like you said, you came from a relatively supportive family, even though obviously they came from you know professions that had no context for what it was that you were doing. Um, would you cut per- personally classify yourself as kind of a more easygoing guy, or is, is that kind of just a cover for a, an anxiety ridden person? <laughs> I mean, I would suspect that most people don't perceive i don't know maybe jack johnson perceives himself as an easygoing guy but i bet jack johnson (laughs) thinks he's like a fucking neurotic mess inside you know i i would say i am i am grateful if what i externalize to the world is that i am a more relaxed person i definitely don't feel that way in my mind though i also wouldn't categorize myself as like an anxiety-ridden train wreck you know like kind of woody allen caricature either i I feel like i feel like my inner life can be fairly tumultuous but i feel like i've had a lot of um experience and training kind of trying to figure out how to um work on that before what comes out of my mouth comes out of my mouth i would suspect that like my wife would probably tell you I am less laid back than like people who know me casually might think I am, you know, like she, like the people, people that are closest to you, I'm sure like, you know, certain family members or people I've probably been in bands with or something might say the same, but, um, but I, I feel like, like everyone, I have a few gears and there's one gear that I, I do try to like let the world happen and be a little bit less like, thinking it's my job to wrench it to my will, uh, which is also learned behavior that I learn and unlearn a million times a day. And then I also have like a gear that's like a complete goofball psycho, like dude who's the sober guy in the van, but up at four o'clock in the morning, making odd sounds like 
doing weird shit, keeping people awake. And then also a gear that's like hyper serious talk at great length about, you know, what probably is at best dorm room philosophy and, you know, social justice issues. But, you know, I I think like no one's any one thing and I'm not, but I do think I'm, I think on the spectrum of like rock people, I am probably way more like it would be perceived for sure. And I would understand why that I'm more like easygoing. Um, and you know, I, I just kind of feel like, I don't know. There's something that goes on in my head a lot in the context of the world we live in, meaning the subculture loosely defined as that might be. It's like, not everything needs my comment. Not everything needs my standing up and like waving a flag. And I don't even just mean, I don't mean like important things. I just mean in general, not everything requires my involvement (laughs) or take. And I think that applies socially sometimes too. Like I'm, I am somebody who can be extremely social and extremely talkative and extremely in that, but I'm also somebody who can very much like kind of let the louder voices be loud, if that makes sense. Um, Because I don't always think what that requires is another loud voice. But I, you know, what I also try to balance that with is some awareness that sometimes that can be misread as you don't care about something or you're not interested or you don't have an opinion. But maybe this is like turning into an old man prematurely, but I just, I kind of sometimes feel like everyone thinks their opinions, the most important one and the most necessary one. And I, I don't know that I think that I also have a job where what I do is express my opinion all the time or my perspective, I guess is a better way of saying that. Mm -hmm. So maybe like socially, I feel a little less compelled to be that way. And it's the same way as like, you know, someone's like, you know, you you seem like pretty comfortable in your skin. I'm like, well, literally at the end of my job, people clap. Uh, if that was the way (laughs) it was for like you know, teachers or postmen or bartenders or, or coma, I don't know, whatever other job, if you did your job and at the end of it, everybody went every five minutes, basically someone was like applauding. Uh, if you know, that speaks to a kind of sick need for validation in the first place. <laughs> and if you need right. more, um, then maybe it's time to talk to someone. I don't know. And, <laughs> and, and, and that's not, not, not that that has not been part of my experience, you know, but, uh, if that makes sense, I guess easygoing, but also I think there are plenty of people who you would say that to that would be like, no, that dude's fucking crazy. And I think a lot of them would mean that lovingly. Um, And then some would not. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM's Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick an area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM sports account to get started. Then visit your promotions section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. There's nothing more exciting than going yard with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park. 
This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Okay, pardon the interruption, but this is extremely important. So, uh, you know, for most of you, you are moving into an apartment, uh, you know, a condo. Maybe for some of you are lucky enough to move into a house. There is a real struggle for making your place look awesome, you know, and we don't have the money to throw around at a interior designer because, you know, frankly, they're inconvenient and super expensive. So here, what what do you do? What do you do? How about me? I am going to provide you a solution. So there is an amazing app on the app store called Havenly, which Havenly is able to help you. And you can do all of these amazing things with whatever the size and space of the place you're moving into. So you can keep your design dreams alive with this app. It's the easiest way to decorate your home. You can chat with the professional interior designer for free to get answers to your pressing design questions because you know, you don't want your place to look terrible, right? So Havenly will help you look awesome, you know, because at the end of the day, we all like our stuff to look nice and obviously ultimately have our aesthetic and our vibe. That's the point of Havenly. They're able to get a vibe of what you're looking for. And after a four step, easy, easy design process, it will create the dream space that you personally love. It's so, so cool. So please download the app today at the App Store, the Apple App Store, and use the code WORDS at checkout to get 20% off your design and furniture purchases. So like I said, it can work for any space, apartment or otherwise. They will make you look awesome. And then the people that you bring over, they'll be like, whoa, like you, you this is, this is great. I like, where'd you get this piece of furniture? Where'd you get this? And you'll be able to tell them like, oh, no big deal. You know, I just went out and did my own thing. But in your back pocket, you're like, yo, I got Havenly. They got my back. So please go to the app store, download the app today and use the code words, W-O-R-D-S at checkout to get 20% off your design and furniture purchases. That, that kind of leads into, uh, you know, another question I was going to ask in regards to the fact that, you know, like whatever we were joking at the beginning, like, I don't know what I could potentially, um, you know, quote unquote, dig up that would uh, cause you to be uncomfortable in regards to, uh, you know, sharing a story or whatever. Sure. Um, you know, you, you've been, you've obviously been publicly present for many years in regards to, you know, you're so forthcoming with your time on, you know, interviews and everything else. Like that's, it's pretty, you're very well documented. Was that, uh, was that something that I guess, like as people started to pay attention to you and obviously, you know, put forth requests as far as interviews and stuff, was that something that came 
naturally, like the uh, ability for you to share yourself? Or was that something that you had to kind of learn in tandem with the fact that you were expressing yourself, obviously, through song as well? Man, that's a much more intelligent question than what I can, what I think the answer is, which is, it's fine. <laughs> I think it connects to what we were initially talking about, which is cool that there's like a present theme that keeps popping up, which is that I probably never thought much about the permanence of that documentation or relative permanence of, I just sort of felt like, um, I guess I kind of feel like, uh, for, well, for one thing, yeah, you're doing an interview and I'm not always thinking like everyone is going to be able to see this forever. Uh, you know, you're just talking. And so sometimes, uh, I, I definitely have friends that are way more circumspect about that stuff. And I guess I've always just kind of felt like if I feel mis- misrepresented by something or if, um, I, I will do the things I can do to speak to that, you know, try to offer a kind of corrective. I also feel like you get influenced by people like, I don't know, I'm going to say something that's going to sound ridiculous here, but like, it's so profound to me that a guy like Malcolm X, for example, right? This man's whole public life was him saying something in public that he thought really strongly about. And then six months later going, you know, I actually don't think that anymore. I've been thinking about it and that wasn't nuanced enough. In fact, I think this is true. You know, like, I think it's one of the strong vulnerability and the, uh, and the willingness to be, uh, un, unashamedly wrong and learn from your mistakes in public. And by the way, I'm talking about like that guy's like a capital P public figure. I'm a dude doing interviews with like niche blogs and every once in a while, like a major media outlet will like condescend to speak to someone like me once in a while. So it's not like, if these people can do that, then that's like the, that's like the kind of, um, blueprint, I guess. But also I feel like, uh, part of it is informed by like being a, a journalism student going to school for that and like taking it seriously when people would take the time to talk to me when I was on the other side of that tape recorder. And, so I take it seriously when someone decides they want to know what I think about something, you know, and, and I tend to take it more seriously if the, if I get into the actual experience and it's clear, clear that the interviewer has done the same. If you sit down with someone and they say like, what are your influences? Where are you from? That's not a diss. That's all some people are, are, are that's where some people are. Um, then I tend to kind of blow through those a little less like, carefully you know or caringly i guess revealingly but if someone has actually done their homework and is curious about like where you are how you got there who you are i mean there's also still the like kind of like uh i grew up and have lived in new york city my whole life but there's this kind maybe it's just catholicism but there's this kind of like austere midwesternism in my mind that's kind of like don't talk about yourself too much like talk about yourself but don't big up yourself and that extends to maybe maybe that's the reason i'm so revealing if i am in interviews is because i can't even believe that anyone's asking <laughs> and so i'm kind of like it's inconsequential how much i do or don't reveal because it's after all how could they be this interested in me if that makes sense i don't mean that as like a uh yeah, well, yeah. i mean it not as a woe is me thing it's like pretzel logic but i mean it more like I just have never thought too seriously about like, 
uh, I don't think of me being interviewed the way I think of like Rihanna being interviewed <laughs> or, or, <laughs> right. or you don't or, have to be, you don't have to be as precious about it because obviously like you're saying, you're, you're, you have a stage, but not to the stage of where, um, the, uh, the pressure is felt by you on a daily basis where it's like, all right, well, what, what does Kevin Devine say about this? No. And that's where I think the people that do that, that do have that and are still so forthcoming, um, are amazing. They're almost like superhuman in some ways to be able to do that and be that way. And it kind of occurs to you why people like, I don't know, don't, I'm going to set a listing a bunch of people. I'll just say that, that man, most people in that position are like, Nope, because they probably did it the wrong, uh, did it once to the wrong person, got burned and then decided that's it. You know, um, I don't really know if that's ever happened to me. I've definitely read articles with supposed quotes of mine that were like butchered and really like missed the intention or the point and, and was not happy about that. You know, like it's a pretty, um, dispossessing feeling to feel like your words weren't your words in public. Um, but I just tend to try to, I guess I feel like, and this does speak to the, the second half of your question. I guess I do feel like if there is any kind of recurring theme in the music I write, it's, it's about personality. The music I write tends to be about people and sort of, trying to make sense of what are like universally accepted experiences most people share that are just like how they are in the world and how they see the world and how the world uh, deals with them. But that I think the, in those like universal, maybe even mundane things are like what actually living is. And so I'm fascinated by that. And I think that's what most of my music is about. And so when speaking to people, I try to present a, uh, honest and, and, and authentic are very weird, tricky, messy words. But I guess what I mean is I just try to present the correlative to that, you know, like talk like a person. If you ask me a question, I'll try to talk to you about it like a person and not like a, some construct of what a guy with a guitar is supposed to talk like, or I don't know, you know, a, what pl- I mean, a pontificator, like sure. <laughs> a pontificator or like a, like a fence, like a fencer, you know, someone who's like, um, you know, question. yeah, I'm, I'm like, I'm like uh, as entertained by Bob Dylan's 1960s interviews as anybody else's. <laughs> and I've watched don't look back a million times, but that's not me. Like I can't, I don't know how to do that. And I wouldn't really want to know how to do that, but I'm thrilled he did because it's entertaining and kind of genius in some ways, but it's not, you know what I mean? It's like he was, that was part of who he was trying to be. Um, I'm not trying to do that. So, um, you know, you just try to talk like a person you're trying to write about being a person. So try to talk like a person would talk. Right. Um, if that makes sense, I don't know. I feel like, no, that, dude, hopefully that does. <laughs> I like I like how you uh, punctuate every uh, every at the end of every uh, question discussion point. You're like I don't know if that made any sense. It's like yeah, you're you're fine. You're fine. Well, I was talking about recently like a long stu- a long term project in my brain is like I would love to write a book someday, kind of about all of this experience, and I think it has to be called that. 
if this make if that makes any sense or if that makes sense because I do I don't even notice it until I notice it and then I'm like oh yeah you literally say this like every yeah. fucking time anyone asks you anything but anyway yeah, yeah. so I'll just it's okay assume I, it does yeah you, exactly if it doesn't I will ask clarifying questions okay there you go or tell me hey that made no fucking sense go ahead yeah. hey Kevin you're a little insane yeah exactly forget yeah. the laid back thing you're a psychopath. Yeah, exactly. I, I scratched that. Um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, it, it struck me, obviously, like you, you've mentioned too, um, you know, in previous interviews in regards to the fact that, you know, I mean, obviously you, you're, you cut your teeth in regards to playing, you know, more aggressive music within the context of punk and hardcore. Um, but then obviously as you started to be able to, you know, express your feelings more, um, in, obviously in regards to, you know, Miracle, where obviously there, you guys were, you know, still quote unquote aggressive and I'm using air quotes on there, but you know, sure. not, to the, not to the extent of what you were doing with, um, um, you know, with, with your first projects. Um, but then, you know, it, it struck me that obviously a lot of people that were, you know, part of whatever scene you were playing in, in the mid nineties, and obviously started to, um, you know, be able to, I guess, play shows, obviously people who are a little more open-minded than your stereotypical sort of hardcore audience, because, you know, you're going to see a lot of people with their arms crossed. If you're going up there with an acoustic guitar and being like, Oh dude, this shit's not cool here. Like right, right. we're not accepting this. Um, did you like, did you kind of feel those transition points for yourself as you started to, you know, obviously not be, uh, you know, completely rooted in like, Oh, I'm just going to continue to play in hardcore bands as I get older, you know? Well, you know, what's weird is like, we never, it's funny. So miracle when I was in high school was called delusion before I was, you know, I was 14 named that band started playing like clubs on Staten Island and dances and stuff like that. And like, we were never a hardcore band, you know, we played, I mean, the first show we ever played, <laughs> we played at this club, the rock palace on Staten Island. First of four, I was 14. We played five original songs and four Nirvana covers a month after Kurt Cobain killed himself with three hardcore bands. And we were 14, 15 and 17, I think. All of, oh no, 14, 14, and 16, sorry, the three guys. All of these kids just looked at us, and this one kid came up afterwards and was like, don't do that again. And I was kind of like, what do you mean? He's like, don't play Nirvana songs. Like, that's not cool. And, you know, I remember kind of being like, it's the coolest. What are you talking about? It's not cool. Like, have you heard those songs? They're fucking great. But it was like not cool to go to a hardcore show and play what was then like, you know, they came from that world, but they were top 40 band. We always skewed closer sonically to like indie rock slash alternative rock. And then slash like once I heard sunny day, like some of that came in, which obviously had some tangential connection to hardcore. Then we did to proper hardcore music. But I think because we were young, and I think because we were in such a small scene, the hardcore bands, thats that was the show. It was either you were a cover band or you were trying to play those shows, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I kind of feel like I got the benefit of the energy, the sort of collectivism, certainly the, the politics, and also the, like, spirited do-it-yourself like, you know, in a very tact- a very practical way, like make your flyers and go to Kinko's and 
go to the shows and hand them out and collect cans of food and all of that kind of stuff. But I never felt like I've never been in a hardcore band. I was just in a really what was like two steps removed from like a kind of a shitty smashing pumpkins ripoff band (laughs) that was being allowed to play with hardcore bands. Um, and at those shows as early as 15, I would play songs in our set that were like, there was a song in the set that was like the bassist and drummer would sit down and I would play an acoustic song. And that was informed by like, my mom growing up around like me growing up hearing like Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and the songwriter Beatles stuff and, um, Joni Mitchell and Paul Simon and, you know, like, and then getting into REM and Nirvana unplugged and Sinead O'Connor and, you know, like that stuff for myself. So I always did that. And it didn't occur to me that that was like, weird they just all felt like songs to me and there was like some of the songs you step on a distortion pedal and the drummer hits hard and some of the songs you don't and some of the songs you need those instruments and some of the songs you just communicate this way i didn't think seriously though about like doing it only like that or or mainly like that or or where that was where it all grew from i guess is the right way to say it sure until I saw Elliot Smith and, and that, that was like 17 years old, I think at tramps in the city, which is gone on the either or tours right before goodwill hunting maybe, or like right before the Oscars or something. And just knowing a little bit about him and going with like my ex-girlfriend at the time, my girlfriend and being like, Oh, this is the best thing I've ever seen in my life. Like I, I just want to listen to this guy play for the rest of the month. If that's possible, he can just keep, (laughs) he can just keep keep playing. And, and also being like, Oh, you can be dynamic and confrontational and punk as fuck without ever raising your voice above like a whisper. You know, he just seemed like so unfuck withable at that time. Um, and he was, playing acoustic guitar and finger picking and not really anything even remotely resembling shouting at any point, you know, um, I never quite got there. I certainly for the rest of my life, every one or two songs or record until I'm dead, will be trying to get there because I just was so exploded by it. But, um, but I don't know. It wasn't, it, it, I never really had that experience where like you were a hard, you were playing acoustic guitar in front of hardcore kids and they were like, you know, steely eyed and telling you to shut the fuck up. Uh, but I did start to have it in my own band. You know, that's a thing. And I think that's because of course it kind of makes sense that your bandmates might be like, well, on the songs where he's, he's, I'm literally sitting on the side of the stage. That isn't the most fun, you know? And I think the last year miracle was a band. I think I probably wrote 30 songs, you know, and four of them were like the rock punk, indie emo leaning things. Miracle got good at. And like the rest were songwriter songs and, and you could dress song. And there's a few on the last miracle record. You can dress songwriter songs up. You can like make them loud 
but you still see what they are, you know, like in the, in the middle of them. And I don't know, it just kind of got to a place where it's like, well, if I'm doing, I don't know if you're, if you're making, I don't even know a proper metaphor. Yeah. yeah. yeah, But if you're, if you're, but there, it doesn't need one. If you're writing 30 songs a year and 80% of them are one way and your band doesn't want to play those songs or doesn't, you know, isn't excited about playing those songs and you want to communicate something and write songs, eventually you're going to kind of go, well, maybe I should do something else with these songs. Um, and that happened with that record, those rec. I mean, the record that became Make the Clocks Move, which is the first thing I, I kind of did on my own that like got any even nominal attention paid to it, was I played all of those songs for my band, and two of the guys in the band were not interested in doing those songs for, for totally understandable reasons. You know, one was like aesthetic, and one was political. Um, so then the question became like, do you throw 15 songs away, or do you like make a record? Um, and then it just kind of happened how it happened from there. You know, I don't know if that addressed the question. No, it to- no, it totally did because I, I think it's, uh, I'm glad you didn't obviously have that experience and I'm glad it was more of a, you know, like you said, a, a natural progression. Cause obviously, um, you know, some people receive kind of the, the full stop, like what you're talking about where it's like, you know, they play in bands of a certain genre for a while and then, you know, they kind of hit a wall where they're like, well, I want to do some other things. And then people, you know, universally are just like, oh no, we can't like, we only know this person as this thing, you know? And, and like, I think, yeah. Hard. It is, and I, but I also think that again, reconnecting to our the the very very first thing we talked about about those having those miracle CDs in your store, it wasn't like if um, I don't know it, I wasn't in a well known band, so it wasn't like if if anyone was thinking that it was a very small amount of people, you know what I mean? It wasn't like there were. I don't know. It wasn't like if the dude from Green Day in 2000 decided, I'm going to put out folk music, you know, uh, and leave Green Day. People would have been like, wait, really? Um, there were probably 2000 people in America who knew when I, who knew what I, who I was, excuse me, or what miracle was when I made make the clocks move, you know? So, um, and what's interesting now is that I feel like it's almost flipped to where like I much more frequently, at least in America, I much more frequently tour with a band than solo. I much more frequently play my live shows with a band are dynamic things and there's middle and there's quiet and there's, but there's a lot of like loud for, for to loud being a relative, like you said, air quotes term, not loud, like mm-hmm. motorhead is loud or something, but loud, like for, for songwriter music. Louder than Elliot Smith when he had a band, I guess, put right. it that way. And, <laughs> sure. and you know, it's kind of funny to watch the weird circles and inversions that happen in your life. And, and now, like, there was a time where I really was interested in communicating something more often than not super directly and, and instrumentally, instrumentally kind of Spartan. And now I'm totally also equally interested in like stepping on the distortion pedal again, you know, and having the drummer hitting hard. And, and so it moves around. I I do know, like though, I kind of think this is a cousin of what we're talking about. Like I'm booked by this guy who books a million people, singer, songwriters, bands, whatever. And a lot of them do that. Where's the band thing, which I like, it's cool. I like the people on it. I like some of the bands I like, you know, 
And at one point there was a conversation about doing some of those shows and I, I may someday do them. I may not, I don't know. But I remember thinking like there was a fundamental reason why I didn't want to do them. And it was because my band is called me. It's not like it's Kevin divine from mineral or something or, you know what I mean? Like, or Kevin yeah. divine from the strokes or Kevin divine from the get up kids. Or it was like, that was, um, if I'm getting up and playing those shows, it's, it's, I'm doing something I do normally uh, anyway. And I'm not like stepping away from something to present my songs from my main project in a way that is reimagined, if that makes sense. So I kind of always felt like, I don't know that it makes sense for me to do that. And I think that connects to feeling that way since I was 15, getting up at shows and being like, well, why not just sing a solo acoustic song in the middle of your show? at the hardcore show, you're not a hardcore band anyway. So how much further, (laughs) how much further removed can you get if they're already telling you not supposed to play the songs you're playing because you're literally covering Nirvana songs a month after the dude's dead. You know, like it never occurred to me that that was uncool because we weren't cool to start with, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, so, and, and, and now it's weird. Like how, sometimes I'll play an acoustic show and it's like, where's the band? Where is your band? Where, when is the next time the band's going to play with you? And then I'll bring the band and I'll play those songs. And someone will go like, when are you going to come back and play a solo show? You know? And it's like, I guess it's cool that each, the people like both. And I was, I always seem to hear from the people that night who preferred the other one, the other one. <laughs> <laughs> totally. But I, I'm, that, that doesn't mean anything besides that's the person I ended up talking to, I guess. But Yeah, no, exactly. Um, the last thing I want to hit on was the uh, the idea that obviously, um, you know, once you start to play in a band and book shows and start to, you know, do do whatever modest things you're trying to accomplish, um, you know, usually the business falls on, on, you know, either one or two people's shoulders in regards to, you know, just booking shows and stuff like that, not obviously illegitimizing any of the work that other people do in the bands that don't pertain to that. Um, right. But, but were you kind of the, always the um i guess we're you know uh, for miracle and then obviously for your solo stuff you literally have no one else to rely on um besides you know obviously management and other people that you're working with yes um, but did the did the i guess the business stuff start to um well not start to but were you always kind of interested in that or was that just simply a byproduct of the fact that you obviously were trying to <laughs> accomplish booking shows and stuff like that it's funny i was always the person who was doing that stuff and I don't remember if it was because like someone recently posted something on Facebook and like tagged the, the band's page in it, my page in it or whatever. And I saw like it was someone in, I don't know, 1996 or seven or something heard us through some, some wherever the hell they heard it at that point. So I think a split seven inch with a Canadian band called Render Useless maybe. Okay. And we, I, this person somehow found a way to reach out to me and say that they had heard it and they liked it. And I sent this person in the mail, like two other delusions slash miracle, miracle of 86, seven inches. And like a note saying like, thank you so much for, for caring about this. And, you know, we'll be on tour and you can find out more about our music here. Or I, I mean, there was always, I was always interested in like, for all the stuff we've talked about, about like modesty. And I always, you want people to hear your music. If you don't, you wouldn't get up and play it in front of them. You know, like 
it's a very fundamental choice to get up and play music and or do anything in public that you could do in private. If you're doing it in public, it's because on some level you believe it has some kind of value that you would like uh, and you think other people might feel the same way. Uh, however you define all of those words, right? So I definitely know I was always the guy that like booked our shows, you know, organized our recordings, tried to like get us to go play other cities or states or, you know, um, and that has continued throughout 22 years of doing this in front of people to some extent. Um, I don't know if that started out of necessity though, or if it was just like um, mirroring behavior, like all the kind of every band around us had someone who did that stuff, who was like the person that designed the flyers and brought them to Kinko's, who was like the person who tried to go to the local, the two local record shops and like get them to buy five copies of your demo on consignment or what, you know, everyone had that person. And so I don't know why it just occurred to me that if uh, maybe it was like, if you, it's like the opposite of, I think what a lot of songwriters think, or maybe did think at a time. Now I feel like if you're not willing to hustle, you're just, if, if you play guitar music and you're not willing to hustle, you are not, you'll be very uh, early acquainted with the idea that this is not the music industry of 1995. You're, you're not going to go anywhere, but no one's coming to find you, I guess is what I mean. I think that, you know, it just occurred to me that if they're your songs and it's important to you that people hear them, then you should be the one who does the work to try to get that as far as you can. Um, and at the time, like the guys in my band, everyone did some things and like our bassist was, was, was much more visually talented than I was. He was like, you know, much more, that was his world. And our drummer was pretty good at like, um, kind of nuts and bolts stuff, but, but they weren't really those guys. And, and then, if, you know, me and the bass player played music together for 10 years and then it just kind of calcifies, you know, at some point it's like, well, I don't do that. Right. I've never done that, you know, that's not my beat. Right. No. And I think that, and then that can get weird. Cause actually that can like resentments can foster around that stuff. And, but I mean, with once it kind of transitioned to my name though, and I've had management throughout, I've had a multitude of independent record labels that I've worked with globally throughout. I've had multiple different people that were, you know, like you said, there's a team, but you know, it was impressed upon me and I believe it to be true that no one is going to care about my career more than I am. And being someone who has been in a few positions over the course of time where like that career was dangerously close to like stalling because you kind of entrusted certain things to a system that doesn't really give a shit about whether or not you're, <laughs> you're there or you aren't. Um, it just, uh, you know, feels a lot more sane to me to just be a super hands-on person. Uh, and also, like, why shouldn't you be? It's your vision, for lack of a less highfalutin word. But, yeah, it's your thing. So if you're not going to invest all of yourself in it, why should anybody else, I guess? Yeah. Sure. Um, but I also totally know that there's people who think the polar, you know, so there's like a white glove approach, too, that's like, I don't do that. I don't lift that. I don't call. No, that's not not my bit. Like, you know, I don't want, don't want to let the business taint my art. No. And and I, 
totally do understand that. I totally do understand that if you're like sweating, I mean, the most insane that I, as in, in my career, as it exists currently, not like when it was what it was in 1998 or something in 2012 on between the concrete and clouds, we were between booking agents in Europe. And I was like, I've been going to Europe since 2003. I know all these people. I'm just going to book our tour. Mm-hmm. Fucking Ian Mackay did that for a much bigger band, you know, before the internet. Uh, I can do that. I can, people do this all the time. I used to do it before I started working with booking agencies. I booked all of my live engagements, you know, and I tried to go and like, book a tour for real where you're talking about like catering budgets and the, where the split point is. And I mean, a bunch of stuff that might be inside baseball, but any, like basically really trying to act like a booking agent. And I was very, 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 very clear that that was something I was not without like some kind of training and like a college course in it or something like that. Right. That was not something I, I, I wanted to be doing was I was barely equipped to kind of do it. And the tour happened and was a modest success in its way. You know, it did what it did. It happened, which is what makes it successful. But um right. But, but yeah, there's definitely like, it is in a place now where I feel like it is just while I am not, uh, anything close to a household name, it is just, just big enough for it to be like truly untenable to try to do all of that alone, you know? Um, but I guess the point is, I remember talking about something once with David Bazan, kind of asking his advice about something that was like band related and him saying something like, uh, Uh, he was kind of like, what do you pay that person? And I said, X. And he said, and is there a line around the block for that person's services asking to pay him X plus one? And I said, no, there's nobody. And he said, well, then you just determined his value. <laughs> and uh, that's what you have to realize about what we do. Like it or not, we come from punk music and no one wants to be the boss, but someone's always the boss. And if you don't embrace it, you're doing yourself a disservice and them a disservice. And what he was talking about was also like the polar opposite of the white gloves thing is like, if we get a hotel room and all I could afford that night was one room and there's four of us, I'm the dude that's going to sleep on the floor because what's going to differentiate me from you is that I'm going to be the motherfucker that outworks you. And I remember being like, and if you look at what that guy does, it's inarguable that he's going to be the motherfucker that works everyone until we're all dead. He's just got like the most ridiculous work ethic in, in the world for a musician. And again, everything, no black and white, everything. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not, if I'm not a vegan Marxist, I'm also not maybe quite as hardline about that. And my, and my application is, as that conversation indicates, but it definitely, I'm somewhere in there. And so that's why it's just always occurred to me, like, you got to do the work. And if the work means like, for example, I get to be home for the first six months of my daughter's life in a way that most men don't get to do for more than two weeks or 10 days or a week, you know, in, in the normative work environment, because that hustle has afforded me an opportunity to have this unorthodox life in music. That's worth 
the three weeks I'm going to have to go away when the record comes out. You know, there's like, now I guess the picture's a little bigger than just like hoping people doing the, working your ass off so people hear your record. It's also like working your ass off so you can like have your life at home, if that makes sense. So, you know, it's kind of like, I think that addresses the question. It's just, it, it just always, it, I guess it, it doesn't occur to me not to. It's really hard, grown hard for me and too hard. I think my problem, if it's anywhere now, is in the opposite direction. I have a hard time delegating and I need to be better at that. That's a work in progress for me to actually let other people in enough right. to, to help. <laughs> Totally, and people totally. who know what they're doing more than I do and not like micromanaging or like, yeah, just there's stuff I need to let go of and it's a work in progress to actually let go of it. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I mean, I, I like that answer because obviously it's, uh, it, it's the idea that it's an investment, obviously, in yourself in the fact that you can obviously, the more control that you have over it, the more uh, ability you have to have the knowledge to, like you said, be able to give yourself the freedom of like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to be present for my, my, my child. And, you know, sometimes people let their business fly so far to their hands that they don't have any sort of a, you know, a personal, um, personal investment that they can actually put their foot down and be like, no, I'm not doing this, you know? And if they do do that, then it's like, well, great. Now we have to cancel a year's worth of touring because you need right. to do this. You should have told right. us this beforehand or whatever. Right. Communication is a big part of that for sure. And, and I think the flip side of that is like, all of that is true. And also I have to realize, and I do realize this, but I have to like re re realize it, excuse me all the time. Like, I don't know. Uh, Someone said to me once, the same booking agent said to me once, being neurotic isn't the same thing as being productive. And so he, for example, might say different things about the laid back question. But, you know, the, the point was like thinking and overthinking and rethinking and asking a million questions about, this, you know, and analyzing. There's a place for all that. And then there's also a place for like kind of handing over both realizing that the results are almost never your business. The effort is, and then what happens is like out of your hands really. Um, but also like realizing that there are other people who specialize in certain things and let them do their job, you know, uh, because I don't know how to be a booking agent better than he does. I don't know how to actually be a publicist better than Emily does. I don't, you know what I mean? Like I, 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 th- I sometimes out of necessity have had to kind of do those jobs, but when there are people who are actually good at them that are willing to do them, let them do them. Um, so, yeah. uh, you know, you're, I think it actually makes your thing stronger. Whereas I think for a long time, especially reacting to the capital thing, I think I thought like, and then I was displeased with, with maybe even more displeased given where I'd gotten to at that point with uh, the razor and tie than I was with, with capital. Um, I think that after the razor and tie thing, I was just like, that's it. I tried. I tried twice. (laughs) I'm not ever going to deal with, you know, the music industry again. I'm going to build my own little music industry and that is how I'm going to do it. And the truth is you can have sliding doors and the music industry can mean a million different things, you know, but, um, but, but anyway, that's, that's where that's at. No, 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 I appreciate that. Well, Kevin, I, I, Thank you so much for your time, dude. Honestly, no. you've, been, uh, you've been very present and thoughtful, and I really appreciate that because uh, you know this—that's what, th- what this whole thing's about. And thank you. 
No, thank you. The same is true in reverse. It's nice to actually have like a conversation with someone who's so uh, engaged and and thinking. So uh, thanks for taking the time to to do it with me too. publicist uh who uh hooked us all up and i really appreciate that so um the guest next week i gotta tell you this is the beauty of the show one week we can have a person like kevin divine on and then the next week we can have a person like mike judge the vocalist of judge on and i just that's amazing right i I just love that fact (laughs) we can have two people who have been cut from roughly the same cloth different generations and um yeah just unbelievable so mike judge's story is great he was so forthcoming i'll go more into it next week but mike judge and so uh, yeah that's that but uh the music as always for the show is provided everything by lowercase noises so uh check them out and uh, i'm very excited because they're releasing the full length soon and i get to participate in helping him craft this sort of stuff as far as the business perspective is i just i'm very excited about that so this is the show's website onehardwordspodcast.com and um, yeah, it's my birthday on Saturday. So uh, yeah, wish me happy birthday. Yay, happy birthday. <laughs> 36 years old. Still going strong or something like that. But anyways, until next week where I talk to Mike Judge, holy shit. <laughs> Please be safe, everybody. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Jabberjawmedia.com. Shh. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Trust me in saying that no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all of the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. The following is a high five moment from highfivecasino.com. Welcome to Burger Yippee. Would you like a hot apple pie today? Yes, yes, yeah, I won. Woohoo! So that's a yes on the apple pie? I just went big time playing high five casino on my phone. Real cash prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. Yeah. So yes or no on the apple pie? Woo! <laughs> I won again. I'll take that as a yes. Drive around. Have you had your high five moment today? Only at highfivecasino.com. High five casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High five casino. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.